This is SAFM. Hi there, and this is uh, the Enviro Show on SAFM. Lovely to have you with us. I'm Nancy Richards. Team today, we've got uh, Lonoa Bofani and Kim Winter. Well, we've got all sorts of things on the show today, so I hope you're going to stay with us. We're going to be looking at the environment from a range of different perspectives. From the editor of Environment magazine, he's John Ledger. He's going to be telling us what's filling his pages and a little bit about the burning topic in the latest issue, which is green electricity. Well, another burning issue is, as you know, is that of deforestation. We're going to be talking to a social scientist, Lee Collingwood, who is very fired about the issue about why deforestation just has to stop. The Green Events Forum, I think they're called the Green Events Forum. In fact, they're called the Event Greening Forum. They're kicking off the year with a gathering to spread the idea that any event that happens in this country can be a whole lot greener than most of them currently are. So do stay listening for that one if you're in the business world and uh, events are your thing. But first up, we're going to be demystifying multi-medicine with conservation research horticulturist Pakamani Gaba. So do stay with us. And I heard him talking earlier today and uh, some fascinating, fascinating stuff. Plus, we're also going to be getting lots of football crossings. That's the Democratic Republic of Congo and Niger. That's the game tonight. Uh, so do stay with us and uh, we'll keep you updated with what's going on there. As always, not a lot of time, but if you'd like to join us, why don't you give it a try? We're on 0892102010, or if you just prefer to sit back and listen, it's okay to do that as well. So let us know your thoughts otherwise on the Enviro show. You can send us a mail, enviro at safm.co.za, or send us a Facebook message on Facebook, and we're on the Enviro show on SAFM. So much for free. It's on some TV that you gotta see. Better picture, better sound. A brand new selection of TV channels in all 11 languages. DT2, the new digital TV system, will definitely make you go wow! This is SAFM. And this is the Enviro Show, and uh, I'm Nancy Richards, and earlier today I had the good fortune to go along to hear all about demystifying multi medicine with Pakamani Kaba. And that was at the UCT Summer School, and it's part of their Celebrating Kirstenbosch Centenary Lecture Series. Well, I have to tell you, I certainly learned a bit, not to mention uh, a little bit more than I bargained on, a sort of comparative study of the beliefs of China versus Europe versus Africa in healing terms. Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but what was a particular interest, or I guess maybe concern, was that 80% in Africa, approximately 80% of people in Africa use traditional medicine for primary health or their daily needs. And that's one thing, good thing. But also that 95% of the plants used are harvested from the wild and very often the plants from which, uh, for which have been harvested die as a result. So you can see that the equation is not so, not so great in environmental terms. Well, let me tell you about Pakamani. He's a conservation research horticulturist for SANBI, that's the South African National Botanical Institute, and he's also responsible for the Useful Plants Garden at Kirstenbosch. Useful plants, that sounds so useful. Mm -hmm. But it was his idea, his brainchild, and he said, 
certainly got it up and running. It's been running for nearly 10 years. I think it's it 10 years. years. Wow. And he's author of a book which we've got right here. It's called Traditionally Useful Plants of Africa, Their Cultivation and Use. So lots to talk about Pakamani, but let's start with the, with the, with the facts and figures and the stats. 80% of people across Africa using, um, using traditional healing, the plant-based traditional healing one way or another. But 95% of the plant material is coming out of the wild. How, how is it being harvested? Uh, it's, it is quite staggering figures. Uh, you know, as I explained earlier on in my talk, uh, it's normally in rural areas uh, where people still live that lifestyle uh, 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 and they would harvest it and... Uh, now they're harvesting it in greater, in bigger numbers because uh, they have to supply the cities. Uh, if you had to do a, a, a wind the clock back to a hundred years ago, people were harvesting for themselves, for their own use. So it was much more sustainable, uh, uh, their culture, their way of life. And uh, put uh, the economy or economics behind it, uh, it's not as sustainable. And you must imagine, the population has grown. Uh, in the early 1900s, uh, population was under 10, uh, 10 million. Uh, now it's almost over 50 yeah, million. Absolutely. So it's, there's a big demand. And if you think about that in South Africa alone, from the studies that were done by Manda and so on, 72% uh, of South Africans still use traditional medicine, you know. Uh, and those plants come from the wild. They are not uh, farmed. Mm. Uh, so that's when we come in uh, as, yeah. as Kirsten Bosch, as Senbi. To, to, to sort of try and get the balance right. But it sounds, it, look, it's a good thing because those people who are harvesting it, uh, it's employment for them one way or another. They're going to get paid for it. Um, mm. Presumably, presumably the traditional medicine works. I mean, it's been used for thousands. What did you say this morning? Thousands and yes, thousands Yes, I mean, the archaeological record, fossil record, uh, tells us that uh, 60 million years uh, humans have been using uh, traditional medicine. Uh, uh, you know, so obviously it does work. Yeah. There are plants and the knowledge that we we have in modern science, modern medicine, is derived from traditional medicine, from testing those plants, the efficacy of them. In the last 200 years, uh, we've had a, a major breakthrough in in. in in efficacy testing uh, of these uh, uh, chemicals or alkaloids and, and glycosides. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so we know they work. Um, it's certainly bringing in income for some people, so it, and it's keeping people healthy, generally speaking. The problem is the sustainability of it. That if, if very often plants are being harvested so that they, they die, um, is anybody putting them back? Is anybody replanting? Hey, no one is really replanting. You know, uh, let's make a, a, a scenario here in South Africa, because over the last 150 years, land use has changed so much from um, more subsistent uh, 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 land use to commercial agriculture and so on. And people moving to a different or being displaced to different 
uh, places and the population growing. So, but people still maintaining their way of life in, in certain uh, respect. So the plants are really under pressure. There's been a lot, uh, some extinction. There's a plant uh, uh, that is called uh, wild ginger or is pepeto in Isizulu. Uh, uh, in botanical scientific name, it's Siphonocallis ethopica. Um, it's a ginger-like uh, a plant, being, belongs to that family, Zingabaresi. That plant was really pushed into extinction, but we almost uh, brought it back uh, uh, using modern the technology, uh, micropropagation, mm -hmm. and bulking it up and uh, uh, supplying. Uh, but I mean, Xenbi's got a lot of partners. We've got, uh, there's lots of environmental agencies out there. I can mention, like, for an example, the Deben Botanical Garden, uh, 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 which was. So, you botanical featured. guys are determined not to let these plants die out and become extinct. But, you know, the logical answer seems to be well, we'll start farming them. And I'm sure that there have been, well, I know there have been projects, I think, somewhere so, somewhere up north where it's been suggested that these plants should be farmed. But I think that there's a problem with that because you, you were implying that it's quite important that actually these plants are harvested from the wild. So that's a bit of an issue. But I'm going to come back to that in just a minute because we, what we're going to do is we're going to cross to the football to find out what's going on. I think we've got Mo Ali on the line to find out what's going on between uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Niger. Have we got you, Mo? Thanks very much. I bet the football sounds really good. In fact, we were just chatting here to Pakamani, who was so watching the game yesterday and <laughs> really enjoyed it. Lovely. But let's move back to plants, moving away from football for a minute. So the issue is that it's apparently not so, um, if I can say, not so kosher for traditional plants for use for traditional healing for them to be farmed. It's, it's preferable, as far as the healers are concerned, that they are harvested from the wild. Why? Uh, because there's um, a school of thought that if you harvest the plants from the wild, they are much more uh, powerful, their energy uh, is good, uh, 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 you know, it's from nature, it grew there. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the healers would dream about the plant and they would go to that site and, 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 and dig it up. Um, that's good uh, uh, as a cultural thing. That was good uh, then. And in some ways, if we can still sustain that, that would be good. Uh, but when we do it on large scales, uh, 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 it's not a sustainable uh, thing. Normally, you know, in a rural area, you'd find, because there's not a lot of employment, you'd find young boys and uh, uh, young women, middle-aged women, who'd go out and dig out these plants and uh, 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 sell them uh, for, a, you know, a livelihood, uh, which is really uh, a fair because it's one of their natural resource, which is there. But because this natural resource, we're all interested in it. It's all part of our heritage. It's mine, it's yours, it's for our kids uh, uh, and our future generation. We have to try and uh, manage it in a way that it's, you know, uh, sustainable. Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So it belongs to everybody here in the country, but and yet to nobody. Because as you pointed out again this morning, that nobody is entitled to the rights to it, because it... It is 
part of everybody's culture here. So how is it to be, how is traditional healing, traditional medicine, plant, traditional plant medicine to be brought into the 21st century safely so that it w works for everybody? Because in some ways, indigenous knowledge, it's not been written down. It's been passed on orally from generation to generation. In fact, you have written it down in your book, Traditionally Useful Plants of Africa. How do you see that we can bring it forward safely and sustainably? Traditional indigenous knowledge is really an important, it's actually a really foundation for a nation uh, because it makes us unique, uh, it informs us where we've come from and possibly where we can go. So we really need to uh, uh, preserve that. Um, I think uh, uh, going forward, we we can, there are, a number of interventions that we've tried. Uh, uh, for an example, at Kestenbosch, uh, with this garden that we have there uh, uh, of growing these plants and researching them and uh, making uh, the gene material available to a variety of uh, people, not only scientists who research them, but uh, people who would grow them and use them. Uh, uh, so, you know, we're trying to promote that and preserve that, uh, uh, both physically uh, uh, by getting plants and seeds out there, and but uh, also by uh, the literature that uh, uh, we have, uh, uh, and intervening, especially with the young uh, minds. Uh, uh, this book, when we uh, wrote it with uh, uh, Peter, uh, it was very much uh, the idea was to enthuse and share the knowledge uh, around traditional use plants and to, you know, it's a fun thing. You know, it's one of the most fascinating things that still fascinate me uh, about uh, being a horticulturist. It's uh, growing these things, uh, seeing a seed germinate and grow into this uh, a huge thing, you know, this uh, this genetic code that it's encoded like in this small, it, it, it's amazing whether I see it in the lab growing, whether I see it outside in the garden, it's, it's it, yeah, quite incredible. In, in fact, in your own garden, you were saying that you've got some growing in your very own garden. But, you know, just lastly, traditional healers are very, um, the Sangomas and Yangas are very, keen as you say they dream about the plants they like to go and harvest them themselves or buy them from wherever if everybody becomes a traditional healer because with your book they could they could grow their own plants use them would the would the potency of the plants not work so well if they weren't administered by a traditional healer I think uh, you know I talked about uh, the placebo effect uh, of plants uh, earlier on or of medicine both in West Asia and uh, here in Africa. Uh, it has a lot to do uh, with who's giving it, how they're giving it uh, uh, the medicine. Okay, we know that uh, one can test for uh, efficacy of certain uh, chemical uh, compounds. Uh, uh, that has its place, but, you know, we haven't delved into as much research of looking at how the placebo effect, you know, uh, uh, affects people, or how how we can use it more, uh, uh, better, or more efficiently. Uh, uh, so, 
I think, you know, people will always need someone to uh, uh, give them uh, uh, some sort of... Although, uh, you know, people have <laughs> can have that power of giving them, taking the medicine and so on. But my main, main, main uh, interest and my main message is to try and get these plants, to try and preserve the cultural knowledge, but to also preserve these plants uh, uh, by cultivating them very easily. And in this book, we try to uh, demonstrate that and promote that. Well, there you go. Pakamani Kaba, thank you so much and very well done for, for your book and certainly fascinating discussion this morning. And uh, I heard uh, Pakamani talking at the University of uh, Cape Town Summer School and they've got a series, a lecture series uh, celebrating Kirstenbosch's 100th uh, birthday, I suppose. And the last one, I think, is tomorrow. And I think it's Professor Guy Midgley. He's talking about climate change and... Yes, yes, is it? yes. Oh, Psychids was yesterday. Okay. Uh, uh, one of my other professors uh, uh, was uh, speaking about that. So, uh, just one more. If it <laughs> takes your fancy, get yourself yes. along to the University of Cape Town Summer School. It's the last one, but they've got all sorts of other things as well. And Pakamani's book is called Traditionally Useful Plants of Africa, Their Cultivation and Use, and it's published by Cambridge. But if you want to see the plants in their natural habitat, well, nearly their natural habitat, growing, you can see them at the uh, the really useful plant garden at Kirstenbosch. Pakamani, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Great you. Great pleasure. Well, you're listening to the Enviro Show, and don't forget if there's anything you miss, we're going to put it up on our Facebook page and you can uh, certainly find out all the information there. Well, we're moving on from traditional to plants to something rather bigger, in fact, forests and deforestation. Lee Collingwood has a social science degree in psychology and economics, but he's also been a reader in the full spectrum of the natural and human sciences, he says, since his early teens. And in his opinion, deforestation is just one of many crises facing the world. Well, it's closely related to environmental crises such as climate change, and we've got him on the line to tell us a little bit more about why he's so concerned. Hi, Lee. Hello, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Thanks very much for uh, for joining us. And we're very concerned about your concern about deforestation. What's your biggest issue with deforestation? Let's start right close to home. Here in South Africa, how bad is the situation? Well, my focus is not actually on South Africa. Um, it's, it's very definitely global because it's, you know, your most critical forests are, are, are the, the, the Amazon Basin Forest and, of course, the Congo Forest, which is closer to home. So maybe that's probably a more relevant uh, forest for us to sort of uh, concern ourselves with. Um, yeah. I haven't studied the local situation. Um, the book was originally written for a British audience, uh, you know, and I ended up publishing it in South Africa due to certain circumstances. So hence my, my perspective is global. So may I, may I address the global Yes, yes, no, please do, because, I mean, global interests are of interest to us all because it, exactly. will, it will affect us one way or another. So give us the size of the problem globally then. Yeah, the size of the problem, and I don't have up-to-date figures on, on actual deforestation figures, but the fact is that deforestation is continuing um, to, this to, to this day, notwithstanding um, massive amounts of attention being drawn to it in the in the global warming debate. For example, the, the Stern Review on Deforestation, published in 2006, uh, made the claim that 18% of global emissions are produced by deforestation. Now, that, that, that's massive, and that's, that amazed even myself. Now, 
as, as you know, to give that meaning, to give that figure context, mm-hmm. um, the entire global transport emissions is only 14% of total global emissions, with the bulk obviously being made up by power generation. Okay. Can you just explain how that works then? 18% of global emissions are caused by deforestation. How? Yeah. What happens when you cut a forest down, especially, um, it, it, it doesn't matter where they're cutting forests down nowadays, what it is, they, they cut down and then they burn, okay? They pile up the wood and the, tr- and the leaves and everything and, and they burn it, which is a, is a convenient way of getting rid of the, of the stuff, you know, of the timber and et, et cetera. Obviously, the valuable timber will be extracted and sold as timber, but for, for most of the biomass, it is, it is nearly burnt. And then, okay, so that produces, that produces uh, CO2 emissions. Then, of course, as you disturb the soils, there's, a lot of, there's actually a lot of CO2 stored inside the soil. So that gets disturbed and released into the atmosphere. And then where you don't burn the stuff, it, it may rot, and, and the rotting produces methane. So there again, you have another greenhouse gas being produced. So this is why, and they're cutting down forests at such a rate that um, that's how big the problem is. Also, in, in your Southeast Asian islands like Indonesia and Malaysia, where they're cutting forests down for palm oil, you have uh, so-called peat forests. And this peat forest has, in fact, massive amounts of, of, of methane and CO2 locked in the soil. We've all heard about the, the massive amounts of methane locked in, in permafrost in Siberia. Well, we don't have the same problem in, in tropical islands, but it's, very, it's a very similar principle where you get lots of methane enclosed in the soil. So this, these peat forests are producing massive amounts of greenhouse yeah, gases yeah. as those forests are destroyed. Lee, I can, I can hear what you're saying about uh, you know, the, the damage that's being done with deforestation happening, but yeah. what, two questions. What is the alternative to deforestation? Because presumably it's not, just, it's not happening for no reason. There's a reason why it's being cut down. Yeah. And one of your big things is what can you do about it, you being... Everybody, everybody here. So, firstly, what is the alternative? Well, yes, the, 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 the I'd say up to up to eighty percent of forest which has been cut down has been cut down to make way for agriculture. Okay. In the Amazon basin, it's been cut down to make way for ranchers and for soybean plantations. Soybean is a massive crop because it's used to feed feed livestock, including in China. So the, the, the demand out of China is massive. They also take massive amounts of corn from the U.S. as well. Um, then there's, um, okay, that's in, the, that's, in the, that's in the Amazon. Then in the, in the Congo, we have a multitude of, of reasons uh, for, for that forest being cut down, but increasingly what we're seeing is we're seeing the Southeast Asian palm oil growers moving in there because they're running out of forest to cut down in, 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 in Malaysia and, and Indonesia. So it's, yeah, my point is it's principally agriculture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, surprisingly, the majority uh, of deforestation is not for logging, though, of course, that is a significant part yeah. of it. Lee, just I want yeah. you to hold the next part of the question because we're just going. Well, you mentioned the Congo there, and we're going to uh, just cross to the football once again to find out what's going on with the DR, DRC versus Niger. It's the Orange Afcon, and we've got Mo to give us an update. Hi, Mo. Well, 18 minutes to, to go here at the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium, Nancy. It's uh, still go. Listen, there's a sense of desperation creeping into the. Uh, Congolese, they've uh, made their full complement of uh, three substitutions and uh, coach Claude Leroy, the uh, 
Frenchman uh, now in his uh, seventh Nations Cup with uh, four different countries has uh, made uh, attacking substitutions in an effort to break the deadlock because this is a very very important game for the Congolese to win because uh, if they don't it would mean that uh, Mali would only require a draw against them in their last uh, group game on uh, Monday and of course Niger would still be very much in the competition if they could pull off one of the tournament upsets against uh, tournament favourites uh, Ghana on uh, Monday but still lots to play for and uh, the game certainly opening up as uh, both sides go in search of uh, that elusive goal that uh, has eluded them for what 73 minutes now but the Congolese on the attack will just stay with this movement uh, goes behind uh, for a corner to the Democratic Republic of Congo but Mali or rather Niger have uh, more than held their own much to the surprise of observers here they are aside into their second African Cup of Nations tournament they have yet to score a win or a draw but uh, this could well be their first ever point at the, the Nations Cup so with uh, 16 and a half minutes to go here at the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium. It's the Democratic Republic of Congo nil, Niger nil. Muhammad Ali for SFM Sport. Thanks, Mo. Well, I'm certain that, uh, you know, can, in the next 16 minutes, something may well have happened. And we look forward to hearing more about that in about, uh, at around about 10 to 10. Well, we're talking right now to uh, Lee Collingwood. He's the author of a book called Deforestation, Why You Need to Stop It. Just before we cross to him, we've got uh, Mike on the line from Sedgefield. Hi, Mike. Nancy, I've got a bizarre story for Lee. Um, I happened to find out the other day that uh, one of the major bottlers of, PE, of water was advertising PET, which was made from plant material. And I did a little bit of research, and I found, in fact, what they're doing is making monoethylene glycol, one of the PET components, from sugarcane in the Amazon forest or in, in, in Brazil. And that is absolutely bizarre in my view. How very interesting. I, I remember that bottled water story. In fact, I think we spoke about it here on the program. So actually, f the PET, some of it, one of the ingredients is coming from the Amazon forest. That's right, from, from sugarcane mm -hmm. grown in the Amazon. And now they would have cut the forest down. And of course, they're saying it's environmentally friendly. Um, mm. I, I, I shake my head in horror when I hear this sort of story. Yeah, gosh. Well, thanks for drawing our attention to that. It's, you know, you, every time people make claims about environmentally friendliness, it's always difficult to know exactly what the, what the true story is. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks. Okay, talk to you again. Yeah, excellent. Thanks a lot. Um, yes, Lee, well, that's yeah. uh, sort of just re-emphasizing really what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, no, I got that. And it is, it is, yeah, it is horrifying and it's, it's greenwash, you know. So much goes under the name, well, it doesn't go under the label of greenwash, but it is. It goes under the label of environmentally friendly, sustainable, etc., etc., whereas it's nothing but. Yeah. It's, or it's anything but. Okay. But, but, but before we digress, let's come back to your point is why you need to stop it. How do you see that somebody living right here in South Africa can actually do anything about it? Yeah. It's all about consumption. You see... The global economy works this way, and they, they call it capitalism, but I actually call it consumer industrialism because that explains exactly what it does. Consumer industrialism, it takes resources from the land or digs it up out of the ground or cuts the trees down to get these resources, and it makes those, those products or those, those resources into products, consumer products, which are then sold uh, normally via you know, highly intensive advertising and PR activities. Now, they create this need for the stuff that we, we think we then need, but we actually really don't. But anyway, 
So what happens is we buy this stuff, and we create the, this pull-through effect through this, what I call, this terminal linear throughput machine, which is, is churning out resources, turning them into rubbish we don't really need, and then spitting it out at the, at the other end. And most of the time it's rubbish which we eventually throw away, you know, after a very short time of usage, made certain by strategies of planned obsolescence, etc., and and so we ourselves as consumers are perpetuating this process. So the way we, the only way to stop it is to reduce our consumption of consumer goods. And um, of course, there's a plethora of such goods that I, you know, I, I talk about a few in the book. Um, for example, I talk about uh, palm oil and where palm oil crops up. In, most insidiously in a, in, a, in a plethora of consumer goods and confectionaries, etc. And um, we don't know when we're eating this stuff, yeah. but we must find, it's our responsibility to find out and to stop, this, and to stop the carnage by stopping our consumption. You know, every I, the, time, sorry, let me, yeah, every yeah. time we buy something, we are voting yes for it via our money. And we must understand this. We must get informed about the source origin of, of the stuff we buy. Yeah, I, yeah. you know, I, I hear your argument, but my concern is, you know, every, when we talk about reducing consumption, we're reducing people's livelihoods. I mean, you know, people, it, it's what makes the world go round. Maybe it's more about conscious, or as you say, conscientious consumption, being a little bit more informed yeah. about the products that you're actually buying. Buy the ones that you feel or that you know to be sustainable and the ones that you know not to be sustainable, keep away. Lee, your book, is it, um, is it available? Is it, is no, it on sorry, the can I, can I just address that, that concern you've yes, raised, the one do. about depriving people of livelihoods? Mm. I hear what you say, and um, this, this would seem an obvious, obvious problem, but with a little lateral thought, we can find that it's not such a problem. Um, what I advocate is that we return to, as much as possible, we return to localized food production, or what, I, or what some people in the business call food sovereignty. At the end of the day, all we really need is food. And um, if we were involved in, at a local level, at organic permacultural type food growing, which is labor-intensive, we could, um, at least locally, we can transform our lives by, you know, relocalizing our food production in a, in a sustainable way. And it, it also requires a, a massive um, change of values and moral, moral values and ways of looking at the world and our relationship with nature, which can, you know, that can come with, with education. So I don't see it mm. as a massive problem, provided there's the will. Yeah. You know, that's what we need, is the will. And, and the information. The, 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 we need the information to know how serious the problem is and that there is something we can do about it. Well, if anybody would like to inform themselves better with your book, is it available? Is it uh, available uh, at bookshops or can they contact you? No, it's self-published and okay. so it's at the moment only available for myself. Okay, so uh, can I give out your email address? Yes, please. I'm yeah. going to do that very thing. Okay. Thank you, Lee. Yeah, and there are all sorts of things, and we find that with the uh, with the Enviro show, we find with all that matters environmental, that one thing leads to the next, and it is always about the bigger picture. You can never isolate one thing. You pull out one string, and it just it attaches itself to the rest of the world. Thanks for getting in touch. I'm going to give out the details of your book and your email address. Thanks, Lee.
Thank you. Okay. Lee Collingwood. And the book, once again, is called Deforestation, Why You Need to Stop It. And if you'd like to get hold of a copy, pop him an email. It's at Lee Collingwood, and that's L-E-I-G-H, Lee Collingwood at hotmail.com. And we will put that up on our Facebook page. But uh, right now, you're listening to the Enviro Show here on SAFM. Well, moving on, I do stand to be corrected, but uh, I'm thinking that maybe the vast majority of the population in South Africa probably lives in the urban situation, which means that forests may not be part of their environment at all. And you know what they say, if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And if it's not in your backyard, chances are you might not even think about it. Well, I guess that's where our next guest comes in, because he's the editor of Environment, the magazine. And the purpose of it is to bring issues of the environment, good, bad or indifferent, right to in front of your eyes. He's editor John Ledger, and we've got him on the line. Hi, John. Good evening, Nancy. Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have I made a proper assessment of the purpose of your magazine? Is it to bring to the attention of people who don't necessarily get out there into the environment some of the issues that there are? What's what's your mandate? To some extent. Our our mandate started four years ago when um, eight non-government conservation organizations got together and decided to publish a magazine together. Now, the largest of those was WESA, the Wildlife Society, and the Endangered Wildlife Trust, and each of them was running their own independent magazines. And uh, they agreed to sync their titles and brought on board a number of partners. And uh, we now have, well, there are eight partners. I'll run through them alphabetically. There's the Cape Leopard Trust, the Endangered Wildlife Trust, the Game Rangers Association of Africa, the South African Association for Marine Biological Research, Sancob, which is down your way, you know that they do wonderful work on the coastal birds. There's WESA, the Wilderness Foundation, and the Wildlands Conservation Trust. And um, the the story, as they say, is um, now four down years. the line. The magazine seems to be going from strength to strength. Its primary purpose is to serve as the magazine or newsletter of those eight organizations. Um, but it also carries a wider message to the broader public. So the magazine is divided into two parts. The first part um, is a, a general section. We have an editorial. We have research highlights. And then we have thematic features. Uh, we feature an eco-hero. We feature an eco-region. We have a photo essay, book reviews. Um, and then the second half of the magazine is the non-government organizations themselves. And they all have a section in there which they contribute and this serves to communicate to their members. The unexpected spin-off, of course, has been an unprecedented level of cooperation between these eight organizations, which previously uh, were very much compartmentalized, and, you know, they, they didn't know what the others were doing. And so what's been achieved here is a wonderful kind of level of communication. All members of all eight organizations can see what the other seven are doing, and then the people who are outside of this get a very good um, uh, snapshot of the conservation, the leading conservation NGOs in this country. Hmm. All embodied in one magazine. Does, has it given everybody collectively, I mean, they say there's sort of power in numbers, has it given the, given the whole group a lot more power? I would have thought so, because um, now, even as one of the smaller NGOs, um, you send out a magazine to your members and they can see that you slot into multiple efforts for the environment in the bigger picture. And, I, I, you know, I sense that, that that must give the smaller organizations a sense of belonging and their members 
a sense of being important and um, following their particular interests, whether it's coastal birds um, or it is leopards in the Cape and other carnivores and so on, I think it's had a very good unifying effect and uh, we certainly are getting a lot of good reaction to the magazine Mm. as we move into our fourth year of publication. Credibility is a very big thing. It's you know we hear a lot of uh, we hear a lot of information. There's huge amounts of information out there. As you know, Mike was just saying earlier, he phoned in talking about the the PET that's come from uh, you know plant material from the Amazon forest you know, deforestation. There's a lot of information that can be very very confusing. I would imagine that it's really important that you need to get all your facts and figures and data absolutely correct. Yes, it is a minefield just on that particular subject, and um, I hope Mike is listening. Uh, we, we ran a feature which had been published uh, at Wits University, which was somewhat critical of the PET bottled water industry. Mm. Um, the South African National Bottled Water Association were indignant, and I said, right, uh, you are allowed uh, to answer this, and they did. They sent in their answer. And Mike has responded because he's a chemist and he knows a lot about PET, and we'll be publishing his comments on what they said in the next issue of the magazine. But you're correct. Credibility is, is a difficult, difficult one to follow. Uh, we don't try and censor people, and uh, you know, the latest issue of the magazine has got some quite contradictory statements by various authors. Um, but, For you know, example? In, well... Um, I've written an article about wind turbines, um, which I, I, I sort of infer that we need to be careful about them. But in the same issue, there is a, um, uh, an article by a journalist about the West Coast um, who's sort of saying, you know, uh, wind turbines are marvellous. This is where the economy takes over from the declining fisheries. So within the pages of the same magazine are quite contra- contrasting viewpoints. And in my editorial, I say that this magazine uh, is for thinking people who care about the environment. And uh, we we try to challenge the minds of our readers um, because there's such a lot of information out there. A lot of it is simply accepted as dogma. But people really need to think about what they're reading and what they're being told and and try and pick their way through the very confusing amount of information. Yeah, absolutely, because even thinking people sometimes get confused, um, you know, and I see that one of your features is the dummy's guide to the green economy. Is it quite important to sort of shake down all the information, take all the uh, technical stuff out of it, you know, at risk of sort of oversimplifying it, because it it can be quite difficult to follow? Well, it is, you see, and, and, and you don't want to dumb it down so that only dummies kind of read it. Mm. And uh, it, it is a tricky situation, and uh, very often people writing the dummies guide um, uh, believe in one particular church, and uh, so they, they talk about that church when they're trying to give you a dummies guide, mm. Mm. Uh, and they don't tell you the, the dummies guide to the other point of view. Yeah. I think, you know, we live in a, an era of unbelievable information overload, and most people don't have time to read widely, they, um, they get snap reports, they see stuff on television, uh, and they make up their minds on that basis. Now, I teach at a university, I teach postgraduates, and I've, you know, in the last three years that I've been at university, I have read so much about energy that, that uh, you know, it's nearly frazzled my mind. Mm-hmm. And the amount of information out there, and contradictory information as well, 
is really very, very difficult to comprehend. Yes, yeah, sometimes it depends on the agenda of the person who's uh, delivering the information, exactly. which, as we know, can be an issue as well. I don't know if you were listening when I was talking to Lee Collingwood. He was talking about his book, Deforestation, um, Why You Need to Stop It. And we touched on this issue of consumerism. And, you know, it, it is one of these things that keeps... Uh, uh, that keeps going, uh, or that keeps cropping up. You know, we need to buy less, we need to consume less, but at the same time, as soon as we start consuming less, you know, people whose livelihoods depend on consumerism are going to go under. You, you've got a feature called economy and environment. I'm not sure if this is what it touches on, but can you just outline that for us? Yes, it does. Um, you know, uh, economists and biologists don't speak the same language. An economist will say because uh, the South African population is growing, you need to grow the economy at, say, for example, 5% per annum, and then we'll all be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and there'll be unemployment, and we'll live in paradise. Now, in the biological world, there's no such thing as growth by 5% or whatever percent per annum, because that results in exponential growth. And any organism uh, which indulges in exponential growth uh, eventually runs out of resources, uh, it crashes and burns and had to, has to start again. And um, there, there are very few organisms that live in a happy state of uh, balance. Uh, life has always evolved um, in this way, and we sometimes forget um, that humankind is still evolving, uh, and we compete with each other. Uh, we compete with each other in society for success, for jobs, for places in the sun, for food, and everything like that. And with the population of the Earth now at 7 billion, the competition for resources is really hotting up. And I think, you know, we ain't seen nothing yet. Um, uh, Lee's problem is uh, clearing of forests. What for? To grow soya, because the, the, the Chinese population, um, its economy is growing. Uh, they're moving up the food chain. They want to eat more uh, protein and meat and so on. And so we have this, um, this human machine which is growing and growing and it has a voracious appetite and it's in the process of gobbling up resources. Now, the, the, the green economy um, seeks to try and slow... Well, there are two definitions of the green economy. The one that you read in the Dummies Guide and the Green Economy Summit uh, presumes that we can somehow replicate the ordinary economy with the green economy. And you will see there that uh, we create new businesses and new jobs around green economic activities. But uh, in, in all of this, it doesn't tell you how you use less resources when your human population is growing exponentially. Mm. A big issue, and uh, we just had a little nibble of it. Your stories, are they available online or is it, uh, well, I, I know some of them are, but not all of them. So, I mean, if you want the big picture you go, or you want to get the whole picture, you've got to get the magazine. But can you read some of it online as well? Yes, uh, we post the current issue of the magazine about a month after it's gone to the members of our NGO consortium. And um, you can then um, find it online. Um, but you can, uh, people can get this magazine in two ways. They can... Um, go onto the electronic uh, copy and see which NGOs are involved. And I reckon that it's probably a good idea for, for most thinking South Africans to belong to one of the non-government conservation organizations. 
Okay, well, yeah. You uh, would then get that as a membership benefit. Okay. Um, but there are also uh, subscriptions available, and if I can give you a, um, an email address for Mabel Ramafoko at Future Publishing, uh, that's probably the quickest way to get information about the magazine. Okay, otherwise www.environmentmag.co.za. That's it. Excellent. John Ledger, editor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you, you, Nancy. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Up next, a little bit of... All right, now you're listening to The Enviro Show here on SAFM. Thanks very much for joining us. And, uh, well, I'm not sure how green the Africa Cup of Nations is. Uh, certainly every effort was made to make the 2010 World Cup very green. But the Green Eventing Company, the Event Greening Forum, has just been established, and I think their thing is to try and make as many uh, events right here in South Africa as green as possible. Well, in the studio with me, we have Justin Hawes, who is chair of the Event Greening Forum. Hi, Justin. Hi, Nancy. Nice to be here. Yeah, no, good for you. I mean, it sounds like a very good idea because there are a lot of events that happen that are very wasteful and very ungreen. What's your purpose? Um, like you said, um, eventing is very wasteful. And a lot of things are built up on a temporary basis and then destroyed afterwards and thrown away. So our organization is a group of eight organizations in the eventing uh, industry, more specifically the business events, so conferences, meetings, exhibitions, um, incentive travel, um, eight organizations like the Conference Association, the Exhibition Association of Southern Africa, the technical production guys, the guys who are doing the rigging, the eight associations like that have formed together to create the Event Green Forum. Um, and then we've actually gone out to get extra members uh, who actually are members direct in, uh, of, of Event Green Forum. So it's fantastic that we've been able to connect eight associations with the eventing industry into one with a common purpose to try and green events, to try and waste less, to try and uh, educate people how to actually green events. So when we talk about events, we're talking about meetings, incentives, conferences, exhibitions, uh, all sorts of different events, mm. weddings. Yeah, I, th I think. I mean, how, you, are you, you, you good, are you good question? Industrial good, or? good question. I think we, we started off very much on a, on a business event basis. Mm. So, um, like you're saying, conferences, um, exhibitions, and and business events. Uh, obviously, longer term, we we would like to include sporting events and um, you know all events. Um, but our principles apply to all events, even to a wedding. Give us, give us some of the principles then. I mean, because I suppose there are a lot of people whose heart might be in it and they're thinking, oh, goodness me, where on earth are we going to start? Let's not have bottled water. Yeah. Let's have recycling bins, etc. But there's got to be more to it than that. Have you got a sort of a list of, okay, these are things to think about? Yeah. Um, and we've got some great resources on our website, okay. um, www.eventgreening.co.za. Um, there's a range of resources uh, available for, you know, to how to green your event. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's the, it's the three R's, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Um, the best way to uh, reduce uh, one's impact is not to have an event, but that's crazy. We oh. need to have events. Mm. Uh, so when you, when you, when you, the, the, the main thing is to try and reduce uh, your carbon footprint, to reduce your water usage, to use effective eco-procurement. Um, and there are eight or nine, uh, how can I say, branches, if you look at a tree, that one can look at uh, that you need to work on. Um, and, you know, in any event, uh, for instance, there's an event coming up, the Meetings Africa, and, um, which, is an inter which is an international event uh, sp uh, sponsored by South African Tourism, where they bring international buyers in. And there's no doubt about it, that has a huge impact because it does have a carbon footprint, people flying in from overseas and, and uh, a huge mm. carbon footprint. But it's, it's a kind of event that brings everybody together and we try and reduce the amount of 
making sure we got direct flights when people hear that we don't have uh, bottled water, that we have natural water, that we buy green electricity. So there are all these things that, that need to be looked at. And just as a sort of a ballpark uh, indication, if you were to look at a, a sort of like a pie chart of an event, mm. what would be the biggest muncher? Um, Yeah, the biggest one, uh, it depends on the event, um, but on these big international conferences, obviously the air flights is the biggest uh, uh, carbon footprint. Um, And then you go to other events where um, it's it's a consumer event like a concert and things like that, where obviously um, the the munches are a little bit different. Um, And some of these big events, transportation is is a big factor. Um, But it really depends on the events. You know, have some events that use a lot of water. Um, and some events use a lot of power. Um, for instance, I'll give you an example, uh, uh, an exhibition like Fridge uses fridges, uses a huge amount of power. Um, and, you know, that's an area that needs to focus mm. on. So one needs to look at different events in different ways. I mean, I'm just thinking of something like Davos, where, where the world yeah. has arrived, you know. Yes. W- where do you even start to green that? Well, I think it's, it's like anything, you know, you've you, you, you got to walk uh, uh, before you run. And it's, you don't run comrades uh, starting out and saying, you know, make 90 Ks, you run one kilometre at a time. And, and it's exactly that. You, you've got to start the walk, you've got to start somewhere. And even if you start in small steps, but start somewhere. You know, and 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 we all got to, we all got to walk this path, but it's a, it's it's a long path. But start somewhere. Start small. Well, don't, start, don't try and tackle start, the world. Start perhaps by contacting yourselves. Do you are Agreed. you are you a consultancy? Can people contact you and say, okay, I'm going to X, Y, and Z event. Can you help me? Um, I, I'm actually in the industry, so you know, I'm actually uh, uh, from a company called Scan Display. Um, but uh, uh, I'm actually, you know, there are a lot of us are actually in the industry. So we're actually not, we're not an association. We're an association of different people run by non-executives. Um, we do have a secretary, uh, Pippa, um, and you're welcome to contact her at info at uh, event greening. So uh, really what you're trying to do is raise consciousness. Yes, and it's the, big, the big thing is education. That's why our, our whole mission is we've got great resources on our website. Uh, we're out there talking, and that's why I, I really – it's fantastic, your show. Uh, uh, really excites me because uh, it's nice that there's – well, it's not nice. It's, it's, it's essential that there is uh, people talking about – uh, the environment, talking about greening, making our world For a sure, place. there's a lot to talk about, and I'm afraid a we lot. run out of time each and every week, but it's been lovely having you with us, and thanks very much for drawing attention to it. Going to give out your website once again, Justin Hawes, chair of the Event Greening Forum. Website is eventgreening.co.za, eventgreening.co.za. Thanks for greening with us this evening. Thanks to the Thank team, Lon Wabofani and uh, Kim Winter. I'm Nancy Richardson. Up next, there's lots and lots of uh, not-so-green music, but we're going to hand over to Steve.